Thank you for checking out the Detroit Church Podcast. We are a growing community in the heart of the city, and we exist to awaken Detroit to the greatest adventure of all time. We look forward to sharing this journey as God is making all things new. Our culture affirms belief, especially belief in oneself. Belief in something that seems empirical or conclusive. We love the idea that if we try harder, if we put more effort in our study or our skill or uh, our dreams and our hopes that maybe, just maybe, we can uh, uh, push past barriers of hindrance and, and restrictions. Maybe we can push past the fatigue of trying too much and we can cause some sense of victory, some sense of moving beyond barriers and if you look around they're everywhere we build these shrines to self-affirmation and self-confidence even now at a time like this when there's a pandemic you will see all of these phrases like hey we got this detroit can get through this we can do it y'all it's encouraging it's positive it's beautiful but how do we know they're true in a sense the same hope that we put in people to be better and to do more is also the same hope that can be shaken when we find ourselves in a pandemic because people we had hope or trust in didn't do everything possible to avoid this. Somehow, the same thing that makes you laugh can make you cry. Our hope and people to be better, that part of us that loves to wish that we can kind of will ourselves to a better situation is also the very same parts of us that feel hurt and feel pain when something goes wrong, when things that should have went one way start to go a different way. Ultimately, they reveal that our hope cannot simply be in each other. Our hope cannot be in man-made systems or just a human will to just try harder. If you're a believer, this is not a time where we uh, uh, have the luxury to set our hope in things that are temporal, to set our hope in things that won't ultimately pan out for us. This is a time where we set our hope in Jesus and we know that Jesus will do exactly what he said he will do. He proves himself not just as a good man, not just as a great teacher, but the fact that he himself is God. The deity of Jesus is far and away different from any other human that we put faith in. This is something altogether different. And it is something that whether we know it or not, the enemy is always attacking and coming after. And it's our faith in Jesus to be everything he said he would be. His truth claims about himself as the son of God uh, has always been something that has been talked about, that's been debated through centuries. And if we're willing to admit it, even now in our own hearts, in times of crisis, it's the first thing that the enemy comes against. So, I'm Fonz, one of the leaders here at Detroit Church. And I'm glad that you've invited us into your house, into your space, that we might learn what it means to put our hope, our faith, our trust in Jesus as the Son of God. 
one who is not a man like us, one who cannot lie, one who ultimately changes everything and is present with us in great times of turmoil as well as times of our success. In today's text, Jesus lays out four witnesses. Four witnesses that all affirm and validate his claim to be the Son of God. Now, it's easy to look at this situation and go, why would Jesus have something to prove? Is he on trial? Like, what's, what's the purpose of all this? Why does Jesus even need witnesses? Some of us uh, who, who believe so passionately would go, I, that's Jesus. I can tell by what he's done, that's just Jesus. And as cool as it is, uh, we have to put ourselves in the spot of the people he's talking to. So today's passage, we pick up right where Pastor Sonny left off last week. This passage is still taking place uh, where the Jewish leaders are actually persecuting Jesus before healing the lame man at the pool of Bethesda. And on top of that, he's made claims that his father is God, meaning he is the son of God. And just as he began explaining, he continues the same line of presenting his case for why he is in fact the son of God. In verse 33, Jesus says this, You have sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Yet I do not receive testimony from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. All of this uh, after it has to take into account this particular verse. Without it, we could very easily see this as another passage where Jesus, the right one, is going against the religious guys or the Jewish leaders who are the wrong ones. But all of that uh, actually would be a wrong interpretation of it. It would be, we would miss the purpose of Jesus coming to just say, oh, just the religious guys being religious again, Jesus' enemies. There's actually more to it than this. And I don't know about you. But if Jesus says he's here to save a people or a people group, I want to find similarities. I want to take a deeper look into what that people group is like, as opposed to just thinking that I'm unlike them. That doesn't apply to me. So as a church, we have to pay attention to this particular line in this passage and not just see these guys as religious leaders who are stubborn and who are uh, churchy or who are far and away unlike us. The first thing Jesus says is that he does not need human testimony. Now, the idea is that Jesus doesn't need a man for him to know who he is, right? He doesn't need a human to validate who he is and his purpose, his mission here on earth. But the scripture says that he actually uses John the Baptist as the first of four witnesses because he is the one that this people group he's speaking to can most identify with. See, they know John the Baptist very well. They have heard his preaching about the coming Messiah. And as a lamp, they were pleased. They rejoiced in the warmth of that lamp. They appreciated his message. They got excited when he said that a coming savior is coming that's going to deliver the oppressed people. And they loved it until they found out that this Messiah that John the Baptist foretold and that he prophesied about was actually this Jesus the Christ, who to them would appear weak, 
would appear feeble. They were looking for this great ruler that would overthrow Rome's oppression of them. Because keep in mind, the Pharisees were also a complicated people. It's not just as simple as those religious people. There is a story there. There is a deeper meaning. The idea with the Jewish leaders wanting to keep the law is more than just uh, trying to uphold what God had said. For them, this was something much deeper. They derived a great sense of identity, a sense of value from their obedience to the law. Now this is interesting because God does not give his people the law and then deliver them. It's the exact opposite. He delivers his people and then gives them the law. Meaning the law by itself, in and of itself, does not deliver us. The truth is we believe that with our obedience somehow we will exercise some sense of leverage or control over God that he'll have to take care of us, he'll have to keep us. He won't allow anything bad to happen to us. Why? Because we've done what he asked. We've given to the poor. We've lived a chaste life. We have answered the call of ministry even. Because we've done these things, some of us believe that God will not protect us. He'll keep us uh, safe and blessed. And now, with a pandemic happening, some of those same people, their faith is shaken. So the truth is, whenever we are feeling too puffed up with the praise and the respect, the accolades of other people, that's an indication. At the same time, if ever we're feeling too deflated because we aren't getting the praise, the adulation, the respect that we feel like we deserve, that's also an indication. That maybe in our own hearts, there lies a little bit of legalism, a little bit of this idea that we can do enough to save ourselves. Keep in mind that these Jewish leaders are the same descendants of those who were taken from their homes, people who were forced to be exiled. We see them in Daniel, right? As the king Nebuchadnezzar has literally rummaged the temple's artifacts. These people know what it's like to have everything taken from you, besieged and, and, and to be cast off in exile. And just like you and I, if our grandparents or our great-grandparents suffer, we make decisions that we're never ever going to be like them. In many cases, legalism is our response to the hurt that the human heart endures. We decide that because we got hurt, or because of our history or our past, because of something that we feel like God should have protected us or saved us from, now we'll use our good works. They will become our protection. God will be our protection as long as we obey him. He'll have to, he'll have to step in and save us. And even in that, there's this mixture of pride and fear. This fear trying to avoid what we all will endure, which is some sense of negativity. And at the same time, pride, thinking that we are somehow above anyone else. When we come to the end of ourselves, it's when we know something has to change. Something deeper inside us needs to be resolved, needs to be made new. We know that we need a revolution. That is what Jesus comes to bring. No one person or people group's glory is able to satisfy the human heart. Even Jesus says, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another instead of seeking the glory that comes only from 
God. This means it's clear to see that when we are too busy caught up in the glory we receive from each other, we miss, we are unavailable even for the glory of the one true God. It's amazing how the first of the four witnesses, which isn't the highest at all, is also the most effective for those of us who know there is work left in our heart to be done. Which leads us to the next. The first is John the Baptist. The second is the works of Jesus. His works testify of who he is by what he does. Scripture says this in verse 36, but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to do the very works that I am doing bear witness about me and that the Father has sent me. Amazingly enough, it's the works of Jesus that cause him to spend extra time and extra effort engaging some of the very people we would step past or step by. We, in most cases, would look at these religious leaders and go, that's a lost cause. They're too stuck in their ways. And yet, Jesus, the works of Jesus specifically cause him to take extra time and extra care. These verses, whether we know it or not, is actually the works of Jesus manifest to them in this moment. It's the works of Jesus that allow him to come right where you are, right into your space, so that he can break down your walls of hostility, the walls of rejection, and he can come through that so that you might see who he is and how much he loves you. So the first witness is John the Baptist. The second witness are the works of Jesus. The third, according to the scripture, in this case, the Father. Now what could be greater than the Father's witness? The Father who is well pleased with his Son. This is why Jesus says that, hey, I don't need the human testimony. He has the testimony of God, the creator of the universe. What could be greater than that? The Bible says, verse 37, And the Father who has sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one that he sent. There could be no greater testimony than that of God the Father. The truth is with Jesus that many of his friends, even his enemies, confirmed his claims that he is the son of God. And this is not the case with anyone else. We see this in the life of Jesus. Both his enemies, his friends, even demons acknowledge that he is who he says he is. This for us is truth we can stand on. The last witness is the scriptures. In verse 39, the Bible says, you search the scriptures because you think in them that you have eternal life, but it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. This is Jesus's plea, really, with these Jewish leaders, that for you who spend so much time in the scriptures, you've missed ultimately what the scriptures are all about and who they've always pointed to, and that is Jesus the Christ. There's two main streams of thought when it comes to the scriptures. You can either believe that the scriptures are a book by us, about God, or you can believe that the scriptures are actually from God to us. Now, it seems insignificant perhaps, but 
if the scriptures are merely from us about God, then read it, don't read it. Maybe it changes your life, maybe it adjusts, maybe not. But if the scriptures are actually from God to us, then it means we must allow them to have correction, reproof, instruction. We must allow the scriptures to redline the walls of our hearts if we are to have an intimate relationship with who they point to, which is Jesus the Christ. Like the idea of the scriptures has always been that they point to who Jesus is and they allow us as humans to come into the full reality of how we were made, how we were designed, and how we were created. And ultimately, until we find ourselves wanting to dive in and to search the scriptures diligently, not just to be made holy or to, to sound smart, but until we find ourselves wanting to dig through these scriptures so that we can see the truth of Jesus, ultimately, we've missed the entire point of their witness. If we believe that the Bible is a book about God, then we might investigate it. It might have some sense of behavioral change. But if we believe that the Bible is a book from God to us, if we believe that in this book we find out the personality, the identity of a loving God who sent his son Jesus to us, then the book actually takes a much more authoritative stance in our lives. It's something that causes us to be corrected, that causes us to be reproved and informed. It's something that actually testifies of Jesus in the everyday stuff of our lives. And that is something that we cannot wield in ourselves. It's something that only our understanding and our accepting of the finished work of Jesus can do in our hearts. There's no coincidence that Moses is the one that's being referenced here by Jesus. Moses is the law giver. For legalists, they would of course lean on Moses because they lean on the law. Jesus is in essence saying that he won't condemn these people because Moses actually already has because they have believed in Moses so much that they haven't believed in who Moses pointed to. It's the equivalent of like like coming to Detroit, a sign that says Detroit, not even the actual city. They come to a sign, they take pictures with it, they uh, uh, take selfies with it. Hey, we went to Detroit. And then they turn around and they go home. Never getting to know, never coming in and actually experiencing the city. This is what it's like to be so emphatically connected to the law and Moses that they miss Jesus in front of them. The truth is that Jesus is the greater Moses. Just like Moses mediated a covenant between God and man, just like Moses uh, helped to build God's house as a servant, Jesus mediates a much better covenant between God and man. One that never needs to be amended, one that never requires another afterwards. And Jesus doesn't just build God's house as a servant, he builds God's house as a son. Martin Luther said this, a Christian is more flawed and sinful than you ever dare believe, and yet more loved and accepted than you ever hoped. The truth is that in Jesus, because of what he's done, we know what it means to have actual hope, not just hope in each other, not try harder, do more, have more faith, show more love. No, we actually get to receive his work for us, his work through us, 
is what changes us and it's what makes us new. It's Jesus that absorbs not just our doubts and our lawlessness, but even the parts of us that want to abide by the law for our own selfish motivations. Ultimately, the gospel gives us a new heart and new motivations. This is what we see Jesus in this conversation, which is really kind of one-sided because he's doing all the talking. But this is what we see as he engages these Jewish leaders. Jesus says something in verse 41 that might mess with our theology a bit. He says he's not here to get glory from human beings, which means ultimately Jesus does not come to get something from us. He comes to get something to us. Ultimately, Jesus is not just the greater Moses, he's the greater Israel. Jesus is everything that we need. He is who we hope, who we trust in. He is how we know that things will definitely get better. And even if better isn't what you imagine it to be, Jesus is still our comforter in the middle of crisis, turmoil, whether it's been super hard, harder than you imagined, or maybe even for some of us, not as hard as we thought. No matter where you find yourself, please know this won't get better because of human will. It won't work because we tried harder. Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, has promised that he would be with us through our darkest moments, as well as our greatest moments. My prayer for you is that you would cling not just to man-made hope, not just to positive affirmations, but that you would cling to Jesus and his truth that he is everything he promised he would be. He's the son of God and he has committed himself to you and to me. So, so how do we know? How do we know we can trust Jesus? How do we know we can have hope? Real, actual, tangible hope. We know because Jesus told us so. Both his works, the scriptures, even his enemies, especially his father, all affirm that we can trust, we can hope, we can believe. That's how we know. Thanks for listening to the Detroit Church Podcast. Be sure to subscribe, like, and rate. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter by searching for Detroit Church.